0: Hello, how are we doing? Thank you so much for tuning in and choosing to listen to us today. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod, sponsored by Betfair. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me, George Ellick. On today's show... We're going to be chatting about some playoff semi-final first legs in the Championship and League Two. We are going to try not to say things that could age terribly uh, with all four second legs taking place tonight, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday consecutively. Uh, we'll also be previewing the League One playoff final between Sunderland and Wiccan Wanderers. That's on Saturday. We'll also be talking about some of the managerial and transfer moves that have happened over the last week or so in the EFL. Rob Edwards from Forest Green to Watford. Ebu Adams from Forest Green to Cardiff City. Mark Sykes from Oxford to Bristol City. That stuff will be at the end of the show. Uh, I'm Ali Maxwell. He's George Ehrlich. Hello, George. How are you? I'm good, thank you, mate. How are you? Really well. Did you enjoy the various playoff semi-final first legs that we saw over the last week or so? I did yes they're all set up pretty nicely aren't they Well, we saw quite a lot of mirroring I would say didn't we mirroring mirroring where
1: uh and certainly the last three of them it looked like the tie was pretty much done before a fairly late goal for the other team
0: meant that it wasn't quite as done could not agree more these first leg games were a real reminder how tight these games tend to be because there's realistically so little between the teams. That is why they finished where they finish in the league, you know, and and all through the weekend. We were reminded as well about little swings of momentum that come in playoff games. Now, they come in all EFL games. Realistically, part of the reason why we love the league so much. There are little spells, aren't there? And, and we saw in all four of these semi-final first legs, each team having multiple little spells, some more than their opponents. And within them, it's just about how you execute your attacks, how you take your chances, and how you how strongly you defend when you're up against it. Uh, so four interesting ties we'll talk about uh, in due course. But first, George, three days and five hours time we're going to be quivering in the wings of the Leicester Square Theatre at waiting to enter the stage and celebrate six years of Not The Top 20 podcast with some fantastic people in the audience. I could not be more excited sitting here this morning. What about you? Yeah I think I could be
1: and I think I will be every minute as we get closer and closer to it. (laughs) It's kind of mad. I don't know. It's A friend of mine asked me on Saturday if I was nervous and obviously doing kind of tv stuff that we've done you think of nerves quite a lot you know we've been doing it for long enough that i think we get our nerves pretty manifest themselves in different ways to your normal kind of first live live tv appearance where you're nervous because you're actually scared i think you know you you learn how to deal with with normal nerves but they're obviously you're aware of the high stakes and you want to kind of perform whereas with the show on thursday I'm just pure excitement. I've got, I've got, I've got no nerves. I, I hadn't even crossed my mind to be nervous about getting up on stage with yourself, Jed Wallace, Mark Bonner, Redacted, and um, and talk about EFL football for an hour and a half. Are you no. not
0: nervous that you might say many really stupid things? And the room, albeit filled with ultimately people who presumably like us enough to buy a ticket, there is a small chance the room could turn hugely if you're that bad. I tell you what, it, it
1: feels more like a combination of like a birthday party because, you know, you're going in a room with people who basically we love in one place at one time. And then the other half of it is a bit like a kind of going to the pub with your mates and just having a chat. And even though I'm aware that lots of the people in the audience won't have the same, won't have a microphone like us, it still just feels like a bit of a get together where we're all just gonna be chatting EFL football. So no, I'm not, you know, if, if I say something up on stage about the EFL, hopefully it isn't stupid because it's what I think <laughs>
0: Well, we've spent the last few days um, putting together the running order, putting together some nice little bits and bobs to make sure that it is an hour and a half packed with uh, insight and uh, interesting discussion. Of course, most of that will come from Jed Wallace and Mark Bonner, our, our magnificent guests. We've spoken to both of them in the build-up. They are both hugely excited to be there, and actually, both of them, George said to me, "Let's try and get some more, f- some more people buying tickets." So, you know, I- I've wasted a lot of energy over the last no, I've expended did a lot of energy over the last few months trying to get people to buy tickets but uh, in this instance I'm just going to leave it up to to the desires of Jed Wallace and Mark Bonner two absolute stars of the EFL one on the pitch one in the dugout uh, one more annou- announcement we were getting a little bit concerned weren't we George that if I were hosting it we'd hit our hard stop at 8 30 p.m and we'd still be on the first topic because I would have got a bit yeah. carried away and, and waffled Correct. on and on and on. Could, could so happen. So we've drafted in to steer the good ship, not the top 20 live. Your host for the evening and our very good friend and colleague, Mr. David Pratton.
1: Yes, that is mega exciting, I think. Because the good thing about, you know, first, first and foremost, we very much res- respect Pruts as a man as a broadcaster um, and he's been nothing but welcoming to us in in our work at sky over the last three or four years, but crucially for this show, he's a legend that we got on with really well. And we want this to be as fun as possible. And what I just said a second ago about it being kind of like going to the pub with your mates. I think hopefully people will see that, um, you know, Pratts is just
0: a bit of a hero (laughs) and having him up on stage with us should bring out the best both in us and also in the night itself as well. Anyone who's listened to his appearance on the Football Clichés podcast, I think uh, around a year ago, nine months or so ago, uh, anyone who's listened to Pratton on Football Clichés, that's the the real measure of the man. He is genuinely very, very funny. So we're hoping that he will um, show off that array of talent and Just ease us through what is going to be a brilliant 90 minutes of EFL action. That's the last time you will hear me say anything about uh, booking tickets on the Monday pod. But if you haven't and if you think you might be free on Thursday, we'd love to see you. We'd love to meet you. Um, We'd love to celebrate the EFL with you and celebrate the pod's six year birthday. We cannot wait. Uh, I'm a bag of nervous energy. George, no nerves whatsoever. Confident as ever. Uh, We can't wait. We'll see you there. So let's talk about some of the playoff action. Uh, George, uh, obviously, I'm only going to say this one more time, being wary that all of the games are taking place in the next sort of 72 hours or so. So, you know, mega predictions might end up looking quite stupid. But that is, I suppose, our cross to bear. Let's start in the championship. Uh, I'd like to start with Sheffield United 1, Nottingham Forest 2, which was on Saturday afternoon. Bloody hell, what a playoff (laughs) semi final first leg this was. Uh, I think the best way of summing it up for those who didn't watch it, was what I tweeted at halftime, which is, is this a playoff semi-final or a game of FIFA? Which is what it felt like.
1: Yeah, it did um, so much for these games being cagey. You know, um, it w- was none of it at all. It was it was pretty end to end, and it was set up in a way where it suited being end to end because even though Blades were the team who had the majority of possession and had most of the territory, um, Forest were by far and away the dominant team in the match because. They were just totally devastating on the counter-attack. I think this was a deliberate ploy. I think you were very good on Quest talking about this, where the lack of mobility in the um, Sheffield United backline combined with the fact that even their most defensive-minded or deepest-lying midfielder in Ollie Norwood isn't particularly mobile himself meant that when they did spring on the counter-attack, rather than, as usual, it being... Basically led by Jed, spent time on the right-hand side with with Brennan and um, and Surridge through the middle. It was purely a case of get as many men forward and, and, and as many men into attacking positions as possible, and that was seen the most by the fact that when uh, Surridge did slip the ball inside for the first goal, I mean obviously Osborne's slip uh, was probably the deciding factor in the goal, and if it stayed in his feet, I doubt it would have ended in a goal. But the fact that it was Kolback who 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 kind of put the ball uh, in the back of the net, the fact that it was those players forwards just showed how Unlike some counter-attacking systems where you basically leave two or three men on the last man or or just inside the half in order to spring, in Forrest's case it was literally as soon as we go, everyone just mobilises and goes as well, and and it worked incredibly well. And even though you know uh, Sheffield United had fit their fair amount of, of of you know of opportunities in the game, they had I think fifteen shots in the game, they were all pretty bad opportunities and even the goal itself there was some fortune with it because I'm not entirely sure Sander Bergen knew a great deal about the header that, that ended up going in in injury time to make it 2-1 and to keep the tie alive I, I was pretty adamant in my own mind um that Sheffield United were um being a bit undervalued by the market even though I did say I thought Forrest were, were rightful favourites and were the most likely to go through but the the level of you know the the gap between these two sides in that, in that first leg was pretty stark I think and um it's going to have to take either a big drop-off. And there's reasons to think, you know, it's, it's it's almost quite difficult for Forrest, I think, going into the home leg ahead because you wonder what they do. And I think being away from home in the first leg suited them because it enabled them to play their game the, the, their own way and, and play the way that they wanted to to win this game. I guess because they go into the, the game at home ahead, you know, if you effectively think of them as them being 1-0 up or 2-1 up as the whistle blows, then the issue of kind of maybe home fans... The home fans looking for their team to play more in the front foot doesn't really ring true here. Um, but yeah, I mean, going into this, it feels like Forest are...
0: Are very very close to booking their place to, at Wembley yeah completely exposing that that lack of pace in the Sheffield United back line uh, and the fact that of course Stevens in particular on the left likes to get very very high and uh, and those juicy looking spaces in the channels are exactly where Johnson and Surridge love to operate and they were just spent they spent the whole half just streaking into those gaps uh, sometimes it was even Zinchenko, whose movement I thought was absolutely brilliant The Blades didn't really have any chance whatsoever to to keep on top of him because his movement was so good. Um, They kept 20 clean sheets, Sheffield United. That was the most in the league in 46 games they were one of the best defensive teams in the league and here they looked like one of the worst and it, it was like their, their, their worst vulnerability that was just being exposed over and over again in a way that I, no one else seemed to really be able to do during the regular season and it makes you wonder why I suppose it's because very few teams have the one thing that Forrest have that scares everyone else and that is speed speed of, of movement direct forward passing um, accurate as well not just lumping it for sure uh, and to very very mobile very quick attacking players I think Forrest just put the opposition in such a bind because everyone's comfortable on the ball so if you did sit really deep in a low block which you'd never do at home in a playoff semi-final if you're Sheffield United then they still can unlock the door they still have the players to create chances and having Spence running at you a lot uh, when you're sitting deep that's really dangerous but if you give them any space, they're even more dangerous. Uh, and that's what we've found here. For over an hour of this game, Forrest with a better side in every single department. Fodderingham saved uh, Sheffield United on a couple of occasions. How many opportunities did Forrest have where either the finish was poor, uh, where someone slipped at a bad moment, where the final pass was poor, or where the final pass should have arrived but didn't arrive? It was crazy. Um, but... And this goes back to what, what what I said about in-game spells and momentum. Sheffield United had a few opportunities of their own. In the first 20 minutes in particular, um, Forrest didn't look particularly watertight, nor did Sheffield United. And certainly in the first 15 minutes of the second half, when it was still 1-0, you know, Njaye and Gibbs-White and Berger, they all had openings. I wouldn't go as far as to say chances, because a lot of them didn't end up in a decent shot at goal, but they all had situations where they could have done a lot better, I think, um, and, and that was a big difference between the two sides as well. Berger in particular, I find him frustrating because he's very, very good in a lot of ways. And he, because of his size and his movement and he can carry it, he gets himself into some brilliant positions in and around the box, but he doesn't seem to have the composure, the instinct, whatever it might be, um, to score goals himself or really, really to, to sort of lay them on a plate for for other players. I know Heckingbottom has spoken himself in the last few weeks about basically thinking Berger should be scoring 10, 15 goals a season in the Championship. And I kind of see where he's coming from. He gets a ton of of opportunities, a ton of looks. He doesn't seem to convert as many as you'd like uh, into a goal or an assist or a really good chance. So, um, I, you know, I, I think... The most interesting for me in the second leg is how do you approach this if you're hacking bottom, George? Like the the obvious thing when you're one nil down, you're chasing a game, you've got ninety minutes to turn around. You'd think, really, you have to go for it to a certain extent. But could that be the worst possible game plan? Given that going for it, by which I mean committing men forward, um, keeping the ball and and trying to probe in Forest's defensive third, that exposes their greatest flaw, their greatest weakness again, and. If Blades were to do that, I think we'd all be pretty confident of Forrest having a ton of opportunities on the break. So can can they play any other way?
1: I guess you can try and set up in a way that both uses the intensity. I mean, that is, is the word we spoke about a lot with Sheffield United going into this first leg, especially off the back of that second half performance against QPR. And it is possible to play a high line play kind of aggressive attacking high pressing football and not constantly be caught out on the counter um, whether or not they have the defenders capable of doing that I'm not entirely sure it would kind of feel to me like maybe playing somebody like a George Baldock right side of centre back could help in some sense in terms of having someone who yes he'd be playing out of position but would have the pace to to kind of chat back and get back in position when we needing to, because none of their three defenders were capable of doing that whatsoever. Um, it, it didn't feel to me. Uh, and even you know, Osborne and Stevens as wing backs don't really have that game or, or necessarily that pace over 10, 15 yards to cope with the likes of Spence and Johnson. So, um, you know, they have to look to play their own game to an extent. And I think those, you know, we've spoken about them before that last, that second half against QPR, that game against Fulham, that was, that was Sheffield United at their best. Um, and so it would be remiss of them to, you know, they, they feasibly, well, they should be a far better attacking force than what we saw on Saturday. Um, although, you know, obviously playing away from home is going to make it more difficult. So I don't think you can completely t- tear up the game plan because you were torn apart. Um, you just have to try and find a way or a solution to to stop being carved open consistently um, when they do go forward um, because yeah I, I can't imagine and I don't think we're going to see Sheffield United basically just drop
0: in um, out of fear especially when they're chasing the game and because of, of Forest's wastefulness and because the one thing that we haven't mentioned that could be very relevant heading into this second leg is Sheffield United created at least two very good opportunities from set plays. One of them was headed off the line in the first half by Surridge. And then obviously right at the end, uh, a good ball into the box, Samba being a little bit flappy. Uh, and there was a couple of, of Sheffield United players throwing themselves at the ball to scramble it over the line. So it is only a one goal deficit. And the, the whole, you know, I, I don't apologise for talking about the game in such a way as to make it clear that Nottingham Forest were were comfortably the better side for the majority of the game, but... That doesn't really matter that much anymore. It's only one goal. And just because they were better in the first game, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, you know, rinse and repeat, copy and paste the same match again uh, at the city ground, which, of course, makes playoff football what it is. Cannot wait for that second leg on on Tuesday night. It's going to be fascinating. Forest in a very strong position. Now, Luton and Huddersfield, George, on Friday night, Drew, 1-1. This one is is really, really in the balance, uh, set up very, very nicely. Um, First things first... Uh, self-indulgent discussion about the fact that we ticked off a broadcast bucket list entry and that was a pitch side live broadcast this was pretty cool we've been pretty consistently working in studios whether it's at Sky Sports or at Quest for two or three years now not too many times have we been on site for various reasons Uh, but turning up to Kenilworth Road for a playoff semi-final on a Friday night that was a, a pretty special occasion.
1: Yeah, it was. I think it's our third ever broadcast from a, a stadium, second ever from a stadium where there are fans in the stadium. We once had a Wembley um, playoff preview, which was pretty incredible, um, sat in the Wembley stand uh, and up in the uh, up in the gantry as well, and then in the tunnel. And then at the Vitality, first game of this season, we were in the stands again. But this was our first time stood behind the iconic uh, pitch side table um, with Michelle and yeah, I loved it. It was it was pretty cool being part of the team for the day. Um, funny to see all the the love that former Luton Town starlet Curtis Davis got from the the home fans, uh, with plenty of them running down and asking what he thought of the penalty appeal uh, when Cameron Jerome was fouled. Um Yeah, I mean it was great. It was it was a, a you know we could only. Um, thank everyone involved at Sky Sports for inviting us down there for the day and fingers crossed, you know, maybe one day we won't just be on for a five minute segment maybe we will be on for the whole thing
0: Some quite good shouts directed our way over the course of the, the evening Yeah, um, Almost all of them highly supportive and very friendly One of them very much not, which I won't repeat Some of them quite drunken and quite nonsensical I, I enjoyed every single one of them, I must say uh, And also, you signed your first autograph So did you <laughs> True. And I got I got yours on on video. (laughs) That was pretty exciting. I completely botched it. Absolutely botched it. You've been practicing all your life, haven't you? I will not be signing any more autographs because I can barely write. Uh but that was quite uh yeah, just one of those incredibly surreal moments. Uh, but yeah, amazing really. As for the game itself, well, what idiot predicted nil-nil on the betting show? What idiot thought this game was gonna be low margin and cagey. George, I think that the energy from the from the stands massively impacted how this game started, in particular impacted how Luton started. They were full of energy and adrenaline and they went straight at Huddersfield from the off, probably in a way that um, I would have hoped for but wasn't necessarily expecting. Uh, Of course, in the end, they got caught out. They went 1-0 down in the first half. But um, overall, that first 45 minutes were were breathless and very exciting.
1: Very exciting, yeah. I mean, it was a, was a, a start where... Within 20 seconds, in my point of view, Huddersfield absolutely should have had a penalty, which would have made your nil-nil one uh, almost as bad as my under one and a half one. Um, but yeah, they were very fortunate to get away with it, and I think that kind of set the tone for the whole of the first half, where um, it was it was pretty frantic. It reminded me a little bit of the first leg between Sunderland and, and Sheffield Wednesday, where it just goes to show that a game of football can be entertaining when it's not got loads of goalmouth action, because there was plenty of intriguing, quite high octane. Uh, midfield battling going on um a fair bit of jeopardy as well you know you I mentioned uh, the the penalty incident and the jerome penalty incident as well I in my opinion I think the the first incident the first penalty shout was probably more of a penalty than the second although I think they were, they probably both had had fair um appeals for it as well um but the key for me and where I think we are going into the second leg which is taking place in about five hours so we don't want to talk about it too much um is is that Huddersfield were, I think, fairly
0: dominant in the second half. Um, well, no shots you know, on target for either side in the second I half. I know.
1: I was going to say it wasn't dominance in terms of, of you know, Matt Ingram making plenty of saves to keep Luton in it, but it just kind of felt like they were turning the screw a bit and it felt like maybe a bit of quality was shining was shining through. Um, whether or not Elijah Adebayo is back this evening, if he is, I think that will make a, a fairly big difference. I think it will make Luton a much more potent attacking threat. Um but i do yeah you know, going into the second leg it, having gone behind it was big for luton to get the, the the you know get the second goal and keep themselves in the tie and i'm certainly not ruling them out um but it does feel to me like if the first half this evening continues down the same line as the as the second half on friday night um it's going to be a, a a very difficult one for luton to come through unscathed
0: there were three refereeing questions uh, all of which i basically sided pro Huddersfield on I suppose in a weird way and and anti-Luton which is a you know it's not something I'm very comfortable saying but I think it's worth discussing for for these games as they are so important uh the Huddersfield penalty after 10 seconds is an arm in the back and and actually kind of throws his legs at him well uh, as well Bree to knock Toffolo out the path of the ball uh that that kickoff routine by the way which we first saw Bournemouth scoring a goal against Fulham with a similar type thing where you sort of set it back to the edge of the centre circle. Uh, There's like two quick passes while a couple of the attackers sprint down the pitch and then you end up with your best passer of the ball in theory playing a nice ball over the you know into the final third and you try and win that flick on or whatever it might be Uh, I've seen that now quite a few times in the last few months across all football all over the world we've seen it and it's been tweeted to us a couple of times this was basically that and it did catch Luton cold uh, and should have been a penalty to Huddersfield I didn't think that Cameron Jerome's penalty appeal Should have been a penalty, even though in real time it definitely felt like it should have been. Partly because it was Naby Saar running alongside him. And I'm afraid I do consider Saar to be one of the sort of clumsier defenders in the championship. Uh, But I do him a disservice. Saar did nothing really but run alongside Jerome. And Jerome did that thing that I get very frustrated uh, that strikers seem to do more and more. Hashtag these days. And that was rather (laughs) than continuing to run in a normal manner towards the ball in order to take a shot at goal when he had a clear shot at goal, S- changing the way that you run in order to both sort of flail any and all of your limbs towards the defender and kind of move away from the ball rather than running towards it just to try and catch a bit of contact and go down. started did unbelievably well basically to avoid Jerome's legs until yeah. Jerome kicked him on the back of the leg and, and they both went tumbling. So I thought that was amazing refereeing if he if he saw all of that and made the right decision because of it. <laughs> uh, because in real time, it did look like Sarah tripped him. Or, or was it more likely that he just thought, mm, I didn't give one half an hour ago, I'd not give this one either? Possibly, possibly. <laughs> and then what did you think about Luton's goal? I, I, My perception of the offside law is that Cornick, who's in an offside position when Naismith whips in the cross, and what a serious ball in that is by the way one of the nicest set piece deliveries that I've seen this season my understanding is that Cornick's in an offside position and makes an attempt or you know whether it's slightly half-hearted maybe if even it's a, it's a little bit late and he doesn't get that near it makes a play for the ball uh in front of Bradley who's not offside and does end up finishing it my understanding of that is that Cornick's attempt to play the ball makes him offside but uh there didn't seem to be too much anger about that one overall so I, maybe I think it.
1: Given that it's been announced today that VAR will be used in the Championship, League One and League Two playoff finals, I think it's probably fair to say that there is quite little controversy surrounding these incidents in this game. Um, Yet, if we'd had VAR at Kenilworth Road, I think there would have been a penalty after half an hour. And I think the Luton... um, After half an hour? After 10 seconds? Sorry, after after 30 seconds, 20 seconds, yeah. And I think that um, the Luton goal would have been disallowed, which is, it kind of feels like when there's no clamour. Um, for these decisions that, you know, would have been changed. Why are we bothering? But maybe that's for another conversation.
0: On a positive note, uh, some some things that I enjoyed watching live, Huddersfield's goal on the counter-attack was, was lovely. It did involve some poor play individually from various Luton players. It was a, a bad touch from James Bree, which was seized upon. Um, but as soon as Luton even looked like they were losing the ball, Toffolo was on his bike. Um, and Toffolo against James Bree down that side was a great battle all night. I thought it was pretty much even. I think they both gave as good as they got. But in this instance, it was a bad touch from Bree. Toffolo's central run was absolutely brilliant into space. Uh, a lovely bit of hold-up play, a layoff from Ward back into his path. And then Kyle uh, Naismith realising that Sinani streaking in behind kind of slips over on the turn. And, and Toffolo's weight of pass was brilliant. Now, Sinani still had quite a lot to do at this point, And I wanted to say that, from my point of view, Sonny Bradley does about as well as he could have done. And did everything that I would do if I was defending Sonani uh in that situation, which was he didn't lunge in, he certainly didn't let him go onto his his stronger left foot. He he allowed him a shot um as he was sort of running wider with it. With his right foot, and he blocked the whole of the goal apart from the, the bottom part of the near post. And sadly, Ingram wasn't covering enough of that goal. He'd been kind of backpedaling a little bit because it was such a quick counter attack, and maybe hadn't got himself into the ideal position. It was also a very good and quite powerful finish from Sonani uh, on his right foot. So I enjoyed that. And then there was some, there was just some quite nice play. There was some, some nice touches, uh, a few th- those, those touches that led to Sonani's goal. There was a half chance for Ward about two minutes later. Uh, where Ingram came out and, and the shot was blocked by Bradley. He was played in by O'Brien. That was nice play. Just Toffolo, O'Brien, Sinani, all of these guys, when they were combining, uh, I was enjoying the interplay. And it would be interesting to see how they go in the second leg because I think we expect Huddersfield to have the majority of the ball. Um, and it would be it'd be interesting to see how well they can actually ex- execute in the final third because they didn't in the second half On Friday night nor were they particularly fussed about that I don't think because they would have taken 1-1 all day as for Luton obviously they had their their half an hour of pure intensity I think they can look back and be a bit disappointed that at the end of that spell when they ran out of steam a bit it was 1-1 rather than 1-0 or even 2-0 because they they did have a lot of territory quite a lot of balls into the box Uh, no Adebayo as you mentioned is a bit of a shame Jerome did fine but he's just not quite the same Uh, And I guess my main concern for Luton is, will Huddersfield get that natural boost from their home crowd that Luton got from theirs? And and how much of an advantage might that give them, particularly in the first 45 minutes or so? Key man for me for Luton is Harry Cornick. I think if we expect Huddersfield to have most of the ball, then obviously uh, attacking transitions are going to be crucial for Luton. And in the flesh, even more so than on TV, I was really impressed with Cornick's movement. Uh, really impressive, constantly on the move, drifting out wide, in behind defenders on their blind side, picking up the ball in wide areas quite a lot. Uh, and he's got that kind of quite awkward, like, herky jerky dribbling style, Cornick, where you're not sure if he's necessarily that under control of the ball but also the defenders don't seem to really know how to how to stop it either. So Cornick's going to be the one that I watch uh, from a Luton perspective uh, in that second leg, which kicks off in just a few hours' time. I also think there'll be another set-piece goal in the second leg. But which way? Chris Kamara. I don't know. I don't know. I think we'll see Pieper for Huddersfield at right wing-back, who I thought was quite tidy. I think we might see Levi Colwell at left centre-back. Uh, and I think that Huddersfield are the more likely to win it, uh, but not much in it. So that's exciting. George, in League One, what a league that's been this year. And we've got one more match to decide the third promotion team. It's between Wickham and Sunderland at Wembley. We previewed it a little bit on Friday night. I thought you did a very nice job um, kind of explaining how a Wickham game plan might look and how, if Wickham do end up winning promotion, how that game might look. What do you make of this fixture as a whole?
1: Am I repeating myself
0: on a Friday night? Um, I mean, I I think
1: it's interesting. There's certainly a lot of um, things that we're going to know about this game to start with. And, you know, a a few of them are fairly cliche. Like, I think we we know that Sunderland will probably have a fair bit more of the ball than Wickham. I think we know that Wickham will set up for that to be the case. Uh, As I said on Friday night on Sky, I think it's quite interesting to look at the um, playoff final back in 2020 where... uh, Wickham beat two one an Oxford team who had the highest possession stats in the league um, and played uh, you know and, and had the well and and did have the technically the better footballers possibly uh, in attacking areas, but Wickham were able to um, over you know in a couple of different ways you know the first was a was a set piece goal which we can anticipate will be a key strength that they'll look to use again on on uh, on Saturday, and then also the um, discipline angle as well like i'm pretty sure um that the news about var might have gone down better in the sunderland dressing room than the wickham dressing room um because i'm pretty sure gareth hainsworth will it, i mean it may not be a key game plan but he'll be looking to make the most of any possible flashpoints. you know if if i were to have a bet on which of these teams will end up with ten men, knowing that there would be one, I would have Sunderland as massive favourites in that market because Wickham are very good, as we saw with uh, Josh McEachran on um, in the in the first leg of the semi-final, as we saw a couple of years ago in the Fleetwood games as well. They know what they're doing. They're very, very streetwise. They understand how they are able to get any advantage possible. And in that playoff semi-final, having after Oxford had equalised, it was then a penalty that um that won them the tie and, and got them promotion. And again, any opportunities whatsoever to win free kicks around the penalty box or even penalties themselves, they will look to take. Which again, VAR could uh, come in fairly um have quite a big part to play in terms of of what could happen in the box. So. I think we know that that's how it's going to play out. It would be, it would be very, very surprising um, unless Alex Neil just decided that he was going to make, take a massive risk and just totally, you know, pull a Zidane against Atletico Madrid from the Champions League final back in
0: 2015. Had a guess? Yeah, let's go with that.
1: Okay, uh, where where he just decided to just drop off and give Simeone's Atleti the ball for the whole game, and they literally had no idea what to do. <laughs> I'd like I'd like to see Alex Neil do that, uh,
0: but I think it's unlikely. I think we know how it's going to play out. I think quite strongly, that that Sunderland should attack hard in the first 20 minutes. 2016. 2014. Wow, all three. Um, no. I think that they should go hard at it for 20 minutes. I think they should keep a very aggressive high line. I think they should keep a very aggressive press, which is something that they've improved a lot under Alex Neil. I think the keeper should be sweeping high outside his box. Uh, and I think they should just try and go high tempo early on uh, and, and, and get in front. Now, you can't do that forever. I don't expect them to do that forever. And if it doesn't work, if it's nil-nil after 20, 25 minutes, then Sunderland may need to drop off a bit and try and get to, to half time nil-nil for a breather. But um, I really think for them, uh, it's important to, to try and uh, impose a level of dominance over Wickham. Uh, I think that for Sunderland, they're in slightly better shape than than MK Dons were when they went into that first leg. In particular, physically stronger in midfield for sure, uh, and definitely stronger defenders in the air than MK Dons. You know, when it comes to handling Vokes, which has to be one of their big questions is is how we can handle the 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 outball to Vokes and how we can make sure that. Either he doesn't win first contact and if he does, how we make sure that, um, you know, we're in a position where we can mop up or at least we're, we're tracking the runners much better than MK Dons did. Um, those were big issues for, for Milton Keynes and I, I don't expect them to be as big issues for Sunderland but of course, um, Vokes put in such a good performance that, you know, there is probably a performance level from him if he's really up for it um, with McCleary running off him that, that makes it pretty tough for any defence at this level. As for, for Wickham, I think... For them personally, I feel it's it's just desperately important that they don't concede in the first half. I think the longer that this game is level, the better for, for Wickham and the more likely they get to go ahead, the longer it's nil nil, essentially. Uh, I think they should be getting McCleary on the ball as much as possible, um, trying to win, it sounds like a weird thing to say, trying to win as many corners, particularly down that right side as possible for Jacobson to swing in as he did at Wembley against Oxford, as he did against MK Dons in the first leg this year to swing in those balls right into the six-yard box on top of Patterson uh, and just try and get those little touches from Tafferzoli and Vokes. So that's a really, really dangerous avenue for Wickham. Um, and yeah, I, I think Sunderland likely, I think, to enjoy more spells of possession and territory here. So it's kind of all, all for me about whether that star quality can show and be the difference against a Wickham defence that love to defend their box. They block shots for fun. They are not going to be bothered about Sunderland getting within their final third. It's just when it gets near the box that they care about it. Uh, and in that second leg against MK Dons, we saw how uh, effectively they can defend their box. But with Rich- with Pritchard, with Roberts, with Clark, for Sunderland, all in different ways, these guys have, I think, the technical skill, um, the potential to provide a moment of brilliance um, which which they have as an advantage over Wickham, not to mention Broadhead's finishing as well, if he's fit and, and can play here. Uh, it's a tough one for this, uh, this for me. I have such respect for both managers. Um, you did the blueprint for a Wickham win on, on Sky. I think you're absolutely spot on, and I would be unbelievably delighted for Wickham Wanderers, for Gareth Ainsworth, for a lot of people at that club who put in an incredible amount of work and have mm. seen their hard work, rewarded over the last few years with with basically taking the club to levels that they've never seen before. Um, but also when it comes to Alex Neal, you know, I, I kind of want to end up being proven right. Like as soon as Lee Johnson was sacked, I said, get Alex Neal in. I don't think he was even favourite at that point. I think Grant McCann was. As soon as he was appointed, I said it was a huge appointment. You got told off a bit, didn't you, for calling it a coup for the club. Um, 17 games later, they've lost one game under Neal. That was his second game in charge. Um, They were done on the counter by MK Dons in that game, uh, but they won eight of their last 12 in the regular season. Nine of 14 if you count the playoffs as well. They're in very, very good shape indeed. I think Sunderland will win one more. Uh, George, are you willing to pick the voodoo warrior of Gareth Ainsworth and Wickham? No. Okay.
1: Um, I think Sunderland are the likely winners uh, in this one. Um, But... Would I, I mean, I wouldn't be backing them, I don't think. Um, I think it's going to be, um, you know, Gareth Ainsworth is a bit of a master. As I've said, he will have a very clear idea of how they're going to go about um, bridging the gap. And and the thing is, because Wickham have had a season in the Championship in between the playoff final we were talking about earlier and now, that has come with increased revenue. And that means that they actually are a, a far, far better team now than they were two years ago, in my opinion. You know, they still have key players like Jacobson and like Anthony Stewart, who are crucial in that playoff campaign but then they were punching so far above their weight. They've now got two players in Sam Vokes and Gareth McCleary, who, yes, they might have a combined age of, what, 67. Um, but in terms of, of the qualities that they offer, they are still, they are top, top tier League One players. You know, if you were to take the 20 or 30 most effective players in, in the league this season, they would be absolutely in there, as would others in this in this team as well. So, um, the, the worst thing Sunderland, Sunderland could do would be to to go in with a lack of respect I don't think that will happen I think after the amount of the four years they've had in in League One or is it even five years um it's it's unlikely they're going to be complacent coming into this one very few of the team who were part of the side that lost two one to Charlton are still there this time round which could be seen as either a positive or a negative you know often when we see teams lose at Wembley normally when they come back the season after they do pretty well um, but plenty of this Wickham side have experience of going to Embley and winning promotion to the championship and that could also be important too so I think either one of one or two things will happen I think either Sunderland's run out heavy winners because they get an early goal and they force Wickham to have to change the way that they want
0: to play um, or I think it'll be very very tight and could go right down to the wire. In League 2 we saw 2 2-1 two, home wins, which I think is basically the perfect result for a first leg. Uh, and both in in exceptionally similar circumstances with Mansfield and Swindon both going 2-0 up and Northampton and Portvale both pulling one back in the second half. George, we'll start with stags and cobblers, partly because uh, the narrative here is strong on the pod. This was really me and you up against each other. In a, a sort of strongest example of that that I can remember, uh, Stags two-one up after the first leg, their home leg. Are you happy with where you stand?
1: I think I've won the battle, but the war still rumbles on. Would that be fair?
0: I mean, like they won the match, so yeah, they, they obviously have that advantage heading in. So I well, would... yeah, but
1: it, but it's still, I mean, it's still pretty tight. I mean, what what I would say is a lot of the reason behind why. Um, some thought that, that you know the, the, the team more likely to win this was going to be Mansfield was because of the perceived hangover that um, Northampton would have. And certainly, even though Cobbler's made actually quite a bright start in the first two or three minutes, um, the first half did feel like um, it was, you know, I mentioned on Sky on Friday that Mansfield would look to kill the tie. And there was a time early in that second half, where it really felt like, you know, that, that outshot that was so well saved, if Mansfield had scored a third, then I think it would have been pretty much game over. Um, but we definitely saw something of some fight from Northampton in the second half of that second half. And they could arguably feel aggrieved not to go be taking a, you know, be going back home with the scores level. They were the better team in the last half an hour. So any worries that maybe we had about John Brady being able to to, to kind of lift his team, I think maybe it did take some time. But I think it's done. And I do think that final day now is 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 consigned to history. And we know that whilst Mansfield's home Mansfield's home record is very good, that's now 14 and 16 that they've won at home, their away record isn't so good. Um so I don't really see any reason why Cobbler should go into the second leg fearful. Um they had definitely have it in them to to not just get themselves back into the tie, but I think to win to win the tie. In normal time in the second leg, not that I necessarily think they will, but this is this is very very delicately poised now, uh, and I don't I know that after a win Mansfield will, will be seen and, and you know, book, my bookmaker prices will reflect of them being favourite, but I'm not sure it's quite
0: that simple. Delicately answered by yourself. Uh, yeah, I. Thank you. Obviously, given that a huge part of my pro cobbler stance was that I did not believe in that this hangover was going to equal them like completely throwing in the towel from the first minute. Um, So I was pretty conflicted (laughs) and quite upset when they were 2-0 down after 35 minutes. And yet watching the game, I hadn't seen particularly any evidence of them being really poor. I think there were a few, there were certainly a few sloppy moments, don't get me wrong. But overall, I don't think we saw that. And yet the narrative had kind of bitten me on the backside because they were 2-0 down. I mean, that. Mansfield had a sort of McLaughlin cross-come shot, didn't they, first thing? Uh, it was a good start from them. Then there was a couple of minutes where cobblers were bright. And then the first legitimate shot that Mansfield had went in. Um, now, Resotes looked to me to be slightly offside, but as I have often said, the angles that we get with those um, cameras do not give us as good a view as the linesman. So I very rarely will definitively say that was offside. Now, the cut of the grass... D- made me think that he, he he probably was, but it was hard to tell. Uh, regardless, was the most important hangover from final day actually Roberts' suspension, Cobbler's goalkeeper, because he's been unbelievable this season. He's been a huge part of their clean sheets and their amazing defensive record. Instead, it was Max Tedding goal, and I feel bad even bringing it up, but the fact is that first shot went straight through his legs from an angle where, as a goalkeeper... Yeah. You would not expect to concede uh, and that put them, you know, behind the eight ball very, very early on. Oates made a big difference. I should say Sam Binch, who's a great friend of the pod on NTT20 squad, big Mansfield fan, runs the Mansfield Musings Twitter account, which I would recommend people follow for Mansfield news and views. He did point out to me after my my preview that Oates had missed four games near the end of the campaign uh, for Mansfield. They'd lost three and, and won one. Then he'd come back for the last four games. Where I think they won two and drew two and they scored at least two goals in every game. I think he makes such a big difference. And he's a player that I'm really fond of. Even if he's not scoring goals, I'm fond of him. But when he is scoring goals, he's he's fantastic. Um he brings so much speed, he's a really high volume uh shooter, he is just a huge threat. Um and he his you know his movement was was an issue for Northampton, certainly in the first hour or so. The second goal from from Stags was just a brilliant move. Build up from the back, out wide loads of nice interchanges and then some composure and vision from from longstaff uh with a big switch out to murphy and just it wasn't even skill from murphy it was just efficient wing play just you know he's very he's very two-footed and that's just as important i think um as being able to throw in a little trick to beat a man to be that both both footed makes it a nightmare for the any fullback, because you know he's either going to cut in and shoot, or he's going to get to the byline and with his left foot, you know he's going to put in a pretty good delivery. That's what he did, tapped in by Bowery. Uh, but as you say, instead of ending the tie, they kind of, you know, they came out roaring. Oates had a shot in the first few minutes of the second half, and that was their last shot of the game for the last what 35 minutes. Not a single Stags attempt. Northampton grew into it. Um, Mansfield did defend their box pretty well for the most part, um, and there weren't a million clear cut cobbler's chances, but enough. One goal, deflected shot from Quickie, uh, enough to get them back in the tie and send it to six fields. Very, very nicely balanced. The last player I want to touch on uh, from having enjoyed this game was Apere up front for Northampton. Uh, He's he's real sort of hustle and bustle, Mm. hurly burly. Is that a phrase? I don't think it is, but I've. I've I think it is. He's very hurly burly. He's. um... I
1: often said about you behind your back. (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah, I just thought. It wasn't the most consistent performance. He was kind of feeling off scraps in the first half. In the second half, he was a big driver for change for, for Northampton, carrying the ball up the pitch. Um, a nice out ball for them, kind of physical, kind of quick. Uh, I asked Alex Butcher about him, who's a Cobbler's fan on the squad, and he said he's got a bit of everything. Quick enough, strong, clever, holds it up well, runs the channels. Um, and he's been key in, in bringing the best out of Hoskins and Epia in recent weeks. Seven assists a pair has got, plus... Three goals, I think, since joining in Jan. So, um, one to watch in the second leg up area. If he has a good game, um, he could be key. What about Swindon two, uh, Port Vale one, George? What did you make of this game? How similar was it to that one?
1: Quite different in terms of, of aesthetic, I would say. I mean, when you see the Swindon team um, on paper, uh, as we all did just before kick off, and you kind of look at that midfield three of Reed, Payne, and um, and Williams, it's just like. <laughs> It is amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible uh, when the stakes are so high just to have pure faith in pure ballers. Um, you've got to, you've got to love it. Um, and as expected, you know, Swindon um, played much of the football in the game um, and were pretty good value. I think for their, well, it, it felt to me like their kind of strongest period of the game was probably in between the 1-0 and the 2-0, um, both goals from Harry McCurdy. You know, for, for a player who doesn't necessarily even play as an out-and-out striker, he does uh, score a, a, a variety of goals. And it was such a brave, good header, you know, beating two Port Vale defenders to the ball, um, who have, both have a fair few inches on McCurdy. Um, and then I, I think the finish for the second goal is probably one of the best technical open goal finishes you could possibly see because you know it's it's easy just to shrug your shoulders when it is you know, it's a bouncing ball and he's just rifling it into the back of the net but I think you wouldn't find many players at that level who have the technical ability to you know to pull it off basically I think you'd see a lot of players um, at all levels really who blaze over the bar and not be able to get such a pure connection it was a great finish from a player who's in been a superb form all season who seems to love playing against sides who um who he's played for before and revels in being the pantomime villain. And that makes him pretty much the perfect player for uh, any playoff uh, campaign as well, because, you know, he, I even saw Port Vale fans um, over the last couple of days pleading with other Port Vale fans on social media saying, stop chanting Matt McCurdy. Let's just, let's just focus on our boys and like supporting our boys. Let's just stop giving him the fuel to, to want to prove us wrong. Um, but again, in a tide that felt like it was drifting very much in the way of, um, and also quite an, an, another wrinkle about McCurdy that I hadn't quite realised is that he he was dropped from the Port Vale 22-man squad last season in January, just before Daryl Clark was appointed. And Daryl Clark came in and immediately was very outspoken, saying, like, why can't I play him? Why has this happened? This is a nightmare. And he was able to recall him in, in, in an emergency capacity very late on in the season due to injuries. But that was it. So... You've also, and then of course, Daryl Clark was, you know, was very much there when when he was released. But you have to wonder how much that had to do with with McCurdy um, choosing to move on from a club where I hadn't worked out, rather than necessarily Clark having been kind of glowing about him in the media. So that's kind of a nice little wrinkle as well, where Daryl Clark must feel like the last uh, kind of eighteen months in Harry McCurdy just couldn't really have gone any worse. Um, maybe no point no, no maybe no fault of his own. Um, but yeah, as I say, th- it felt like the game was very much heading towards being the only two-goal advantage we were going to see, except for the Wickham one in the EFL playoffs after the first leg so far. Um, But then James Wilson scores a pretty fortuitous goal. You know, he's played onside 100% um, either because he played onside, also because the ball ricochets off a Swindon defender anyway, so it wouldn't have mattered. Um, But it was a a deflected shot that kind of deflected into his path. And he rolls it in past Ward from from two yards, and suddenly the tie is back live. And again, it kind of felt like Port Vale from then on. Might have been able to be the team to to go on and get the the goal to make it two all, so advantage Swindon for sure,
0: but by no means um, a done deal this one either. Incredibly uh, nicely poised, both of these games. I I'm I'm happy to put this down to the conditions, which were very poor, a uh, lot of rain and quite a lot of wind. But I was a little disappointed with. The quality on show in the first half, having big this game up quite a lot. And I like to think there are a few people watching us on Friday night who only watch this game because I sort of suggested (laughs) it might be a cracker. I mean, we had three goals. We had a fair amount of incident. We had box uh, box office McCurdy being box office. But I didn't think either side were firing on all cylinders in the first half. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to put that down to the conditions. Port Vale's long passing was desperately poor. Um, kept going out of play or going all the way through to the keeper, um, which normally suggests that there is conditions at play there. Um, But Swindon didn't necessarily live up to their reputation as the, the man city of League Two either in the first half. And I wonder if that was partially purposeful from Ghana due to Port Vale putting on a, a fairly intense press they put Charlie the midfielder as close to Reed as, as he could get uh, out of out of possession trying to put pressure on them uh, and and Swindon actually went longer a bit more than I was expecting and I think that was an okay tactic you know Davison did pretty well as a number 9 on loan from Charlton he he's pretty physical he 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 was a real handful for the Vale line, even if he's not always the most precise with his first touch or with his flick-ons I thought he was certainly uh, something for them to think about and then of course McCurdy um just you just can't keep a good man down, and he's he just always gets involved. Uh, Payne very good in the build up to their second goal. Uh, of course, his shot was parried back out to McCurdy, and I thought actually the full-backs for Swindon Egbo and Ayandolo were, were very good. Um, uh, you know they're playing in a back four, not a back five like a lot of wing backs at League Two level who thrive going forward. But both of them, particularly Egbo, getting very high uh, when Swindon were attacking. His delivery wasn't amazing, but he certainly got quite a bit about him, I think. And Ayandolo is probably. Almost the opposite. He hasn't got the dynamism for sure. He doesn't cover the ground as well, but he's just a very tidy player and I think he makes quite good decisions. So I quite like the the different types of fullback that they have. Um, I was very disappointed with the, the, the Port Vale attacking players, particularly Edmondson and Wilson, to be honest. I think given that Swindon did have spells of possession where they do end up with at least one of the fullbacks very high up the pitch and only two centre-backs at the back and Louis-Reed normally, you know, edging towards the final third the longer they have possession. They have to run the channels better. I mean, the passes have to be better but they have to be a bit more mobile, the strikers, Um, try and get down the sides of Conroy and Baudry. Neither of them did that well enough at all for me Um, but they don't really have that player in their squad which is a bit of a problem here even Proctor who came on for Edmondson he doesn't really have that in him either Uh, I've not seen Edmondson I'm afraid have a good game whenever I've watched him on loan from Leeds Um, I don't know what happens where he'll end up this summer but I've not been hugely impressed I'll be surprised if he starts the second leg and I do like James Wilson Uh, he he really gives me I'm going to ask you actually do you know which Premier League striker James Wilson gives me huge vibes of? (laughs) A former favourite of mine on this very podcast. Uh, Ah, who would that be? Spent a long time on an island together. Ah, Bamford. Uh, Yeah, he's kind of... Bam, bam. He's not as tall as Bamford, but he's lefty. He's kind of quite a clever player. He's not that quick, but he's got a bit of physicality, but not loads... And he can finish really well with his left foot, but but doesn't seem to score as many goals as you'd expect. Um, I do like him. I do think with the right strike partner, he could be really effective, but I don't think he's got the right strike partner. So, you know, I've spoken about Oates and a pair, eh? Clearly, I've got a thing for like really mobile, kind of quick physical strikers who can run the channels because that's what I want. Vale to have and that's what I don't think they do have Uh, it didn't escape me George that Swindon scored from a set piece after what I said in the preview about Port Vale having a big um, height advantage on this front I think we showed with that little great whipped cross and a great bit of movement from McCurdy that guile and precision can beat beef and height and strength uh, from set piece situations that's the beauty of football now uh, of course Vale's Goal did come indirectly from a set piece, set piece which Swindon couldn't quite clear, and and that that's got to be a way that they approach this this game. They didn't succeed Vale in imposing that physicality until the last twenty minutes. They have to do better than that at Vale Park. They only had two corners in the whole game, which frankly, I know I keep banging on about this height advantage. That's unacceptable. That is unacceptable. You know, but by the end when they had the wind in their sails, when Swindon were defending, but it's,
1: it's hard to force corners, though, isn't it?
0: I was about to say almost the opposite, mate. Like, mm. strong set-piece teams are strong at winning set-pieces, yeah, yeah. and it's I... not random. Think of think of Rotherham, and particularly think of West Brom under Val Ishmael at the start of the season. It's not random that these teams end up having 30 opportunities to put a ball into a packed no, box. No, no, I agree. But I think in isolation, it's
1: not, you know, it's not the equivalent of losing 2-0 to your arch-rivals and not picking up a yellow card. It's like... <laughs> You know, it's, it is, I'm sure getting balls into the box and the rest of it, it is still not a kind of foolproof. There isn't like a foolproof means of, of in, in a 90 minute game,
0: ensuring that you get the set piece opportunities. I don't think necessarily, but well, I, I get what you're saying. Could be huge outcome bias, but I'm thinking of Rotherham, West Brom, Wickham. And I, I think I don't necessarily agree. Um, I think you can play down the sides. You can be smart. You know, playing balls off defenders, winning throw-ins and corners, just getting into those areas in the first place with accurate passing and with the aforementioned running into the channels. Vale didn't do that well at all. They did not have enough situations like that, um, and that's what they need to change in the, in the second leg. It's going to be a great game at Vale Park. I think, I think Port Vale will put quite a lot of pressure on the Swindon back line much more than they did so uh, on Sunday, but you think of Swindon attacking in transition with Payne playing playing passes forward into space for Barry and McCurdy attacking off the wings in particular. That's that's an exciting sight and I'd be pretty excited. I know Swindon fans are so bullish because of their amazing away record this season um, and I don't see why they wouldn't be. So um, fascinating, fascinating. Just because I have to, George, who do you think will be playing in the League 2 playoff final in a couple of Saturdays' time? <clears throat> I think it'll be Swindon against
1: still just mansfield but marginal
0: yeah i think it's gonna uh, any, be any
1: any any combination of the four wouldn't surprise me
0: <laughs> uh, i'll go with northampton but I've changed my mind about Vale. I think Swindon are going to get that done. So Cobbler-Swindon final, I think, at this moment in time. Uh, we're going to finish off this pod with a couple of quick parish notices. That is to say that across the three divisions, there's been a bit of movement uh, when it comes to managers. There's been some news that we want to touch on um, and just a couple of, of championship free transfers at the end as well that we'll mention. Um, George, the the main news story over the last week off the pitch was a pretty unusual situation that we haven't covered too often. Uh, We've probably wanted to see this more often. That is, a young manager winning the League Two title in Rob Edwards and getting a job at the very top of the EFL, specifically Watford, who still have another Premier League game to play, or two maybe, Uh, but but Rob Edwards will be their manager next season. Uh, It caused a bit of a hullabaloo, so we'll talk about the hullabaloo, we'll talk about the appointment. Um, Take it away, George, Eric, I always like hearing what you have to say uh, about managers in particular.
1: Thanks mate. Um, It's exciting. I'm very excited as someone who um, thinks that clubs at the top end, whether it's the Premier League or the top of the Championship, um, maybe don't take enough risks in terms of recruiting direct from high achieving League One and League Two clubs, whether that players or managers. I think it's really refreshing to see Rob Edwards being given this opportunity by Watford. Uh, I'm aware that a lot of onlookers have been very surprised that Watford are the team who have decided to take this plunge. And I agree, Uh, it does seem to be at odds with the way that they normally recruit. Uh, I do wonder if um, Brexit and work permit issues may have had a a part to play in them maybe looking uh, uh, closer um, to home when it came to manager um, appointments. We know that John Eustace was, um, you know, a former player of theirs, was odds-on favourite for the post for about 10 days before Edwards was was appointed. So it definitely feels like a, a different blueprint of manager they were looking for. Um, someone who has a high ceiling, who's young, who, you know, gambling on potential rather than looking to pluck someone um, off the managerial merry-go-round either, uh, you know, in the on the continent or in the UK. Um, I don't necessarily think that Edwards is 100% guaranteed to, to succeed. That isn't what I'm saying. I just think that he is someone who talks an incredibly good game, um, walked an incredibly good game for... <laughs> 35 odd games and then I'm I'm not entirely sure what happened in the second half well not in the second half in the last couple of months of the season but either way they won they won the league and when you consider that that he has now moved on when you consider that Richard Hughes their sporting director was seemingly very very close to moving to Portsmouth um, when you think that Ebu Adams has already signed for Cardiff uh, that Kane Wilson is is looking likely to be moving on well his contract is up and and surely will be leaving fairly soon maybe those off-field Um, eventualities had a part to play in in the drop-off in form but certainly you know he's someone who his record in improving players in a short period of time should make him very attractive to a club like Watford who have quite a few players who are performing pretty poorly given how they should be Um, and the fact that he's also worked under a sporting director at, at Forest Green means he should understand and he shouldn't have any issues in terms of settling into a club where he's probably going to have very limited if any say in terms of transfer dealings as well. I'm really excited to see how it goes. I'm totally, and you know, I don't care if this means that I'm seen as being biased, not for any reason beyond wanting him to succeed, because I think what it will do to the future of League 1 and League 2 would be massive. I think if Rob Edwards were to go and win the championship next season with Wat- with Watford, it will revolutionise the opportunities that young coaches are going to get for succeeding in League One and League Two. That in itself should mean we see way more bright young things taking their, taking their chances. We should see way more clubs looking to recruit from that level. You know, the, the coaches between the age of kind of 30 and 40 who have, done their due um in terms of learning and and are looking to get their first steps in management I think it could be revolutionary for the whole of the EFL if, if Edwards does a good job and makes a success of it as well so for that reason alone I'll be rooting for them um not in a partisan way just purely because I think it would be the best thing for the, for the leagues that we love
0: there was one aspect to this which uh I wanted to touch on which I thought was interesting as part of the discussion I saw a lot of people um, and we talked about it on NTT20 Squad. I saw a few people tweeting you this sort of thing uh, when you were tweeting about it. Um, the the feeling that uh, it's a bad move for Edwards because Watford have the track record they have in terms of hiring and firing mm. managers. Um, I'm going to read a message from NTT20 Squad, um, which I think is a sort of opinion that is fairly widely held. And it's not a ridiculous one by any means, um, saying that, would Watford be the right move right now with their approach to hiring and firing? You know, he's got a job for as long as he wants it for a screen where he's backed financially and probably would be even in League One. Uh, The big jobs will still be there next year if he stays at Forest Green and continues his great work. And maybe a season in League One would give a relatively inexperienced manager a helpful extra season before maybe going to a a club with intentions of being on the Premier League. If he did go to Watford, there's a chance he could be incredibly successful, but a higher chance that he'll be on his sofa at weekends by Christmas if he doesn't start like a train. And when I was thinking about that, because I think it is an interesting thing to raise, I didn't. Really agree with it, to be honest with you. Uh, I understand the viewpoint for sure, particularly the one about big jobs still being there next year. I had a bit of a problem with that because we know how quickly narratives change about managers uh, in this game. And I think differently to that. I-, I don't think you can assume big jobs will be there next year. You know, Mike Duff could barely have done any more at Cheltenham Town over three years. And it still doesn't seem like he is being offered so called big jobs. Uh, Rob Edwards is obviously Flavor of the Month right now, but what if Forrest Green, as we've discussed, they might well do, having lost, uh, about to lose a ton of key players. What if they do start struggling in a tough League One next year? Suddenly he's going to be forgotten, really, for a few months at least. Mark Bonner, Mike Duff, Kieran McKenna, Liam Manning, Russell Martin... If any of those continue to thrive, Edwards gets forgotten pretty quickly, I think. And all of a sudden, people will start pointing to that late season wobble this season and going, oh, well, maybe those first few months were just a fluke. It's amazing how quickly it can change. I think you take this job every single time. Another reason, sadly, and we don't love thinking in purely financial terms, and I know that fans don't love the financial side of the game when it comes to decision making, but... Without knowing the numbers in particular, let's say at Forest Green, he might have been on, hypothetically, hundred grand a year. At Watford, after a year in the Premier League, in receipt of a big old chunk of parachute payments, you're probably thinking a million quid a year, let's say. I don't know the numbers involved, but around... I would not be surprised if it's a tenfold increase, and that's just the fact. So maybe job security well managerial life expectancy is higher at forest green but if you have to work there for 10 years to get the same amount of money as one year at Watford then it's a no-brainer you know um, yeah I agree and then there's the pure uh, but, and we, but, that, but this, that's this, lastly. this and go feels is, go on you go gone.
1: well just I think people often forget that side of things as well you know we always you know we, we are obviously pretty envious of people like Rob Edwards who are in to do the careers that they do and do the jobs that they do. Um, but the, the money side of things is massive. And even, you know, you, you look at you know, Mark Sykes, a player at Oxford who's moving to Bristol City at the moment, and you have Oxford fans wondering why he'd do that. Well, I mean, the, the money jumps massive. It's absolutely huge. So for Rob Edwards, as I say, the worst case scenario for Rob Edwards is that he gets sacked fairly early on. Um, and if he does that, then he will will be going in for the, for the same jobs, the same opportunities, but with way more money in the bank. And for, for a guy with a family, that is, it might not be romantic. It might not be the way that we like to think about things. And, you know, when you're playing football manager um, and you are taking Forest Green from League Two to the, to the Premier League and you get offered the Watford job after season one, that that doesn't really come into your thinking. But this is real life. And, uh, and sadly, you know, having that, financial um, side of things is, is is yeah
0: I mean it's as important as anything the last point I'll make and this feels very George ellick is that Watford will be either first or second or third favourite to win promotion back to the Premier League next season uh, they will have a budget that dwarves 20 at least other teams in the division that they will compete in there's basically what I'm saying is there's a chance Rob Edwards does a 7 out of 10 job and is mm. a Premier League manager by August 22 exactly yeah uh, you, you can't put a price on that. Uh, let's move on. A couple of other bits and bobs. Uh, Scotty Brun. Scott Brown, is the manager of Fleetwood Town with Stephen Whitaker his assistant. Brown started twenty three games in the Scottish Prem this season for Aberdeen. <laughs> straight into the cod army dugout. Quite fun. Yeah, uh, I've no idea what to expect. Apart that it's going to be pretty lively.
1: You'd have thought. Um, given that we've had. What We've had um Joey Barton, Scott Brown, Paul Cootes, uh, who else we had going like center midfielders who are going through at Fleetwood recently. Glenn it kind Whelan. of feels like Glenn Whelan. Um, yeah, can you kick people? Can he? Could he used to kind of run around a bit, but not as much, really? Yes, yes, get to Fleetwood. And I mean, I'm excited, he obviously brings some serious clout with him. Um, you know, we don't know what he's going to be like as a manager, but certainly as a leader and someone who uh, has been a winner um, I'm intrigued to see how it's going to play you know in, in my mind uh, after a, a pretty abject season um, you know when you think how far they've fallen since um, Barton took them to the playoff semi-finals against Wickham um, you know this should be hopefully them getting back on the, on the right path we don't know you know in terms of, of uh, investment in the playing staff over the summer we're not sure what's going to happen but certainly Brown feels like you know, for a club who we were worried were basically just kind of starting to to Wind you know,
0: it stopping
1: down. In the investment, maybe. Yeah, exactly. This feels like a, a bit of a change of a shift of um of
0: tact. Well they're they're certainly pushing the fact of him being a I quote them born winner pretty hard, Fleetwood Town in their various press releases. But I think he's gonna find it very, very tough um as a first job. Any sort of survival I think would be incredibly impressive like they were so poor this season they stayed up on what 40 points they won one of their last 23 24 it's a very 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 tough job this for a young manager for any manager especially if the number one remit is keep us in league one now I'm not sure it necessarily is because of what we've spoken about over the last year or two with Fleetwood winding it in a little bit in terms of the 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 spend that their uh, owner Andy Pilly puts into the club so I think uh, the most important thing for Fleetwood, uh, for, for Brown, for Pilly, might be just um, do your best. Um, continue to develop the youngsters that we saw being developed this season. Paddy Lane, Hayes, Johnston, McAdam, Boyle, Bagley, all these kids getting minutes towards the second half of the season. He suggested that he'll recruit a lot from Scotland because he knows loads of players from playing up there. I don't really necessarily buy into that being like a huge advantage necessarily. You know, he's not a recruitment specialist. He's just played a lot of football in the last 10, 12, 15 years in Scotland. I don't know necessarily if that translates to to smart, savvy recruitment, but let's see. Let's see. It's going to be very, very tough. I mean, uh, at the very least, I think we know what a good job would look like from him. For Mark Kennedy, George, who's the new manager of Lincoln City, this is an interesting one for me because I don't really know or have a great grasp on what the expectations will be for Mark Kennedy at Lincoln City. I'm interested to know what you think we should be be judging him on and what you think is realistic, what sort of uh, obstacles he should be leaping over to do a good job.
1: Again, until we see the recruitment, it's very difficult to know where we're going to put them. Um, I don't know enough about him to um, have too much of an opinion, but (laughs) given the high regard that I have for their previous manager, um, he would have to be very good in my mind to to have them improving. And given that Michael Appleton left in, in the way that he did, it feels fairly unlikely to me that we're going to see Lincoln kind of up the budget and really have a swing at at getting back into the promotion mix. So I think it's going to be a a fact-finding mission for everybody um, where, you know, we watching on can't say now that I think expectations could be any higher than than survival, I would say at this point, after losing a manager who would be rate highly, appointing a rookie manager who could feasibly be anything. What I would say is that if you look at the history of, of Lincoln City and, and their managerial appointments in recent years, they've been very, very good. They seem to know how to spot a manager. Um, well, we so spoke that to is the chairman one once,
0: didn't we, on another pod, Clive Nates. He seemed like someone with his head screwed on.
1: Very much so, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Well, uh, you said he's a rookie manager. You're obviously forgetting the 12 games he managed at Macclesfield just before COVID hit and they oh, were yeah. relegated. He came in, they were bottom... Yeah. He did not pick up many points as Macclesfield manager, but they were absolutely all over the place at that time. Otherwise, he's kind of done a bit of everything. Um, He's done youth stuff at Ipswich, Man City, a bit of Wolves, all clubs sort of known for their youth uh, academy work over the last decade or so. Um, and, And he's Irish, which is only relevant because... Lincoln seemed to have quite strong links to Ireland, more so than than I think other clubs at the level. Um, And, you know, maybe he could help uh, turn that into an even stronger, um, a bit like Scotty Bruin in Scotland. Maybe he could (laughs) make the most of of his nationality there. Uh, Down in League Two, I mean, there are still vacancies in League One, we should say. Uh, Wimbledon and Charlton in particular, we'll discuss those in due course. In League Two... One that kind of caught some people by surprise, I think, was Hartlepool sacking Graham Lee. Uh, it's probably about 10 days ago or so now. Um, but the context being that Hartlepool came up from the National League with Dave Challoner, who left for Stockport County, has just won promotion from the National League into League 2 again. Um, Challoner took credit, well, we gave him a lot of credit for reigniting Hartlepool United, getting them back into the EFL. And they went down the route of appointing a club legend in Graham Lee uh, to replace him. They went from top half playoff flirters under Challoner to bottom half not picking up that many results. But I didn't think it was necessarily sackable, George. But they decided to go in a different direction. What were your thoughts on that?
1: Hard to say. I, you know, this is meant as no disrespect to to Graham Lee at all. But I think when we, the At the tenth anniversary of um, of uh, not top twenty, when we uh, do a a game of pointless, um, and one of the categories is EFL managers to have managed more than ten games uh, in the EFL um during the time of the podcast. I think Graham Lee might be one of the few pointless answers where, um, by no fault of his own, he took over a club when they were pretty much embroiled in in mid-table mediocrity, and he's left them at the end of um a fairly uneventful. Uh, time and charge in mid-table mediocrity. So it's it's hard to really say much too much about him. Um, you know, I, I don't think Hartlepool fans have been particularly upset. Obviously, the, you know, the Chaloner, um departure came at a time where it was quite surprising, but it certainly felt like when they made the appointment, this was an appointment for the future with a guy who had a relationship with the club. It looked to be making a little bit more sense when the night that Lee was sacked, suddenly Tony Mowbray um, with kind of links to the area was odds-on favourite to get the job, that's gone very quiet. So if that is the case, you know, you can understand why Hartlepool, if they had a sniff of getting Mowbray in, would maybe just sack whoever was in charge to do so, but that hasn't come to fruition. So I don't know, really, just a case of of not really sure and uh, see who they get in and Mm. and see how they go for next season.
0: Worth noting that results were actually pretty poor uh, from the moment he took charge, or really from the moment Chandler left, uh, and accepting that it was a tough situation to step into. Uh, They had the 20th best record, or rather the the fifth worst record in League Two for the last 31 games, scoring only 27 goals, less than a goal a game in 31 games, and picking up 31 points. So um, I'm sure that's what the board would have pointed to as they look to be ambitious and and challenge uh, the top seven. I'm sure that'll be their aim for next season. Uh, We wait and see who they'll get. Um, Barrow and Phil Brown's brief dalliance comes to an end. Um, Of course, Phil Brown... Uh, was part of the sort of musical chairs at the bottom of League Two, where clubs kept sort of chopping and changing their manager, basically just looking for like one or two wins to get them out of it. Uh, And and I suppose Barrow did get that from Phil Brown, but they also picked up far more defeats uh, and they, they stayed up, not necessarily because of their good performances, but because of poor performances from other teams. So it's a bit of a reset for Barrow. I'm not too, too, uh, too surprised to see Phil Brown not staying on. Um, before they've appointed a manager, they've appointed a sporting director, a guy called Ian Wood, who is their new sporting director. As far as I can tell, he has been a an agent, or as they framed it, he has been working in player management for the last uh, 15 years um and the suggestion is that he knows a lot of players a lot about the recruitment side of the game uh, a lot about the transfer market uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether that can help barrow build a squad uh, and i suppose more importantly than that hire a manager uh, that can have them punching at their weight uh, next season because this season was a, a bit of a write-off it's fair to say so uh, ian wood the sporting director manager tbc for barrow Lastly, George, we're going to take one transfer each in the championship. I want to ask you uh, on behalf of Bristol City fans what they can expect from their heavily rumoured free transfer signing from Oxford United, Mark Sykes.
1: It's an interesting one because he, um, I know, was flagged up very early on the data side of things as being a, a really promising prospect at Oxford kind of before any Oxford fan really woke up to it. Um, He's incredibly tenacious. He's technically very gifted and he has rather a turn of pace. He's just fairly quick. Um, But he's someone who should score more goals and this season started to show that part of his game as well. It reminds me a little bit of the Joe Rothwell um, move from Oxford where in the flashes, Rothwell showed what a good player he is. But given where he has ended up and probably, you know, I think Rothwell's career, even though he's not that young anymore, is still probably on an upward curve where he's going to end up. Um, I, I don't think many Oxford fans would have predicted that his next move after Blackburn would have been another step up the ladder. And it looks like, you know, he could well be a premier league footballer next season. It's kind of the same with Sykes, someone who clearly has the talent and in flashes has shown it. Um, Very, very, you know, as I say, the the kind of tenacity part of his game. He's he is a player who, whilst being a technically gifted footballer and being a bit of a ball player, has that other streak to his other, other streak to him, which can often actually boil over. I mean he's had a couple, certainly one very, very destructive red card um last season at, at the Stadium of Light as well against Sunderland. Um but I, you know, I'm I'm a fan of his. So I don't think we can particularly begrudge him moving on um on a free transfer. Um but still some way to go. You know, unlike the Rob Atkinson transfer from last summer where I was telling any Bristol City fan they had themselves a gem. um, I wouldn't say that the Sykes deal is is necessarily one that will be a success but manage
0: right, there's probably still more to come. And... Not far from Bristol is Cardiff and Cardiff City have made a free transfer signing of their own. Ebu Adams from Forest Green, having just helped them to promotion. Um, you talk about no one begrudging him the move. That is certainly the sense I get from Forest Green Rovers and their fans. Three seasons at FGR where he's been uh, fabulous for the most part, incredibly popular Um, From the people I've spoken to that know Adams as a player and I've spoken to quite a lot of people because listeners to the pod will know he's been someone I'm very fond of and have been for a few years now. Uh, Apparently, the first thing you hear about is his absolute obsession with football, with improving himself as a player, his pure dedication uh, to football and to succeeding as a footballer. Uh, Having been released when he was a kid uh, by Norwich City, uh, they didn't think he was good enough for them. I think it's a bit of a redemption path for him. Uh, And also, you know, there's an amazing story from this season about when he flew back from AFCON, where he'd been playing uh, for uh, Gambia, and he flew back to England via Paris, and I think within five hours, six hours of getting to UK soil, he was playing for Forest Green in one of their league games because he'd missed a couple because he was away and he felt bad and he wanted to contribute. Now he has contributed to their promotion. He's a centre midfielder who's played in, in a couple of different midfield type roles for Forest Green, quite often playing fairly advanced. Now his goal return's not been great in League Two. Four goals in 1920, two goals in 2021 uh, and three goals this year. He's not a natural goal scorer, but he can really help teams get up the pitch and stay up there because of his physicality, which has really stood apart in League 2. His tackling stats, his distances covered, all of this stuff has always been well above League 2 level. Now, the big question for me when it comes to Cardiff is, I can definitely see why they're adding um, what they would consider to be physicality and dynamism uh, in their midfield. I guess my question is, if you're above the level for League 2, where does that translate for championship level? Will Ibu Adams, who's been dominating League 2 midfields for some time now, Will he do the same in the Championship? Or does the fact you're moving up two divisions, which we know has been a difficult step for players at times, you know, might he meet his match physically? And if so, does he have the technical ability to to stand out? That's probably my biggest question. I don't really know the answer to that. He's not been a creative passer. He's not really been much of a goal threat. Um, But I think there's a spot for him in a midfield. I think you just need a couple of other types of players um, alongside him. I think at the very least because I'm keen not to say I think he's going to be sensational in one of the signings of the summer. I'm just not confident enough in any player stepping up two divisions to to say that definitively. But I like Adams a lot. He will have been fairly highly sought after. For Cardiff, in the situation they're in, where they do have quite a big summer ahead, to get this done early on a free transfer... Um, is pretty impressive stuff. So I, I think it's a really savvy piece of recruitment um, and, and clearly speaks to what Steve Morrison's telling players because Adams, as I say, I'm sure he would have had some offers, top end of League One, bottom half of the championship and he's plumped for Cardiff. So that that uh, makes me think that uh, Morrison's putting together a pretty good presentation, presentation package. And finally... We get to see Ebu in the championship, which I think is where we've been wanting to see him for a few years. So uh, Mark Sykes, Ebu Adams, a couple of transfers either confirmed or heavily rumoured uh, into the championship. And that's it. For the last time on a Monday pod, please come and watch our live show if you're around on Thursday evening, the 19th of May. Uh, if you can get to Leicester Square and the Leicester Square Theatre for 7pm, we'd be so, so chuffed to see you. And we'd be very, very grateful because the more of you that are there... I think the merrier the night will be. It's going to be an absolute cracker. David Pratton hosting, uh, George and I chipping in with some bits and bobs, uh, and then Jed Wallace and Mark Bonner bringing some serious insider insight as well. Um, plus some drinks afterwards. What's not to like? Uh, come and join us at the Leicester Square Theatre. Book your tickets using the link in our description or Googling Not the Top 20 live. Uh, it'd be great to see you there. And we cannot wait. Thank you so much to Betfair for their continued support of this podcast. Thank you to George for listening to me witter on as he does every Monday and for providing some searing insight of his own. Um, we're pretty excited about this week. A lot of playoff, semi-final second legs. If you want to chat about them with us, join the NTT20 squad using the link in the description. It's a great place to be at all times, but particularly when these big games are on. Um, lots of good discussion on there. We will be putting together a quick betting show in the second half of the week. Uh, exact release time TBC because we've got that live show looming Uh, but we will do so ahead of some playoff finals and we'll talk to you then, go well.